After heading up the Smithsonian Museum of American History, Brent Glass has concluded that there are five basic types of historical sites you can visit to spice up a great American road trip. The themes that are important to me, and I believe help us understand who we are as Americans, are freedom, war, innovation, diversity, and landscape. Filmmaker Ken Burns helps us appreciate how important America's national parks are just in time to celebrate the Park Service centennial. If there were no national parks, the Grand Canyon would be lined by mansions of the rich. Without the national parks, Yellowstone would be called Geyser World. And get reacquainted with Havana as it gears up for a game-changing increase in American visitors. Havana is an international city. Uh, This place on the eve of the revolution was the wealthiest tropical city in the world, so it has so many architectural glories. We're learning more about ourselves and our neighbors in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. National parks have been called America's best idea. Ken Burns shows us why in his landmark National Parks documentary series. He joins us in just a bit to help celebrate the centennial of the National Park Service. We'll also get inspired to see firsthand many of the important sites that help define the American experience. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Thanks to the Obama administration relaxing restrictions on travel to Cuba, I was able to get my first look at our neighbor island last January. Christopher P. Baker's been keeping us up to date about Cuba on Travel with Rick Steves. And that includes the changing rules that are allowing more Americans to travel there under a set of people-to-people requirements. Chris joins us today to recommend what to see in Havana as they face a time of historic transition. Chris, nice to have you back. Rick, it's a delight, as always, to be with you. Havana. Now, let's put this in perspective. Uh, Cuba is, what, 80 or 90 miles south of Florida. There's uh, 11 million people in Cuba. Two million of them are in Havana. When you fly into Cuba, you're likely to fly into Havana, and uh, it can be a little bit overwhelming. If somebody's traveling to Havana now, how do you sort out the city? What are the challenges? What are the highlights? Uh, what are the must-sees? Wow. You know, Havana is an international city. Uh, this place on the eve of the revolution was the wealthiest tropical city in the world, so it has so many architectural glories. And most of them are are there. They've not been replaced by redevelopment. Um, And so it's really a city caught in time. And it's also caught in time back in the colonial era. So firstly, I'd say start with Old Havana, the colonial city, which is now three decades into a restoration, and spend two days walking the plazas with wonderful life going on, a very vibrant city with all the dandies who are posing for your photos in their floral Carmen Miranda dresses or big cigars, and then head out to 1950s Havana. You've got to take in the Plaza de la Revolución. You've got to take in the cemetery. 2.5 million people buried in the Cementerio Colón. And then wander the streets of uh, Vedado District, where the old Havana Hilton is now the Havana Libre Free Havana uh, Hotel. You've got the Hotel Nacional, where the mob famously met in Godfather II. That actually happened. And walk the Malacan Seafront Boulevard. Sensational. It is. And it's a, it's a sprawling city, uh, but you can get around very easily because you just simply flag down a taxi. And there's a lot of different ways to get around Havana. Four or five different kinds of uh, variations on taxis. Can you review those for us? <laughs> yeah. The tourist taxis, um, by the way, are more expensive, almost double than they were two years ago with all the Americans inflating their prices, frankly. They're all over around the hotels. But if you really want to be a Cuban, you hop into one of the 1950s Colectivo taxis. They operate along fixed routes like buses. It's only 50 cents for a journey anywhere you wish, and you're sharing a taxi 
with the Cubans, with the music going, etc. And that that's really a tremendous I am in Cuba and a Cuban experience. And then you've got the Bicky Taxis, these three-wheel makeshift um, pedal cabs that uh, hang around all of, uh, in all the streets. And so Bicky, Bicky from Bicycle, is that? Bicky from Bicycle, yeah. Right. And they hang around in Old Havana and Central Havana. And they're a very fun way of getting around, too. And the Coconut Taxi. <laughs> I actually don't recommend the coconut taxi if you go that this is like a looks like a giant yellow egg on wheels a hollow egg it's the three wheeler uh the reason I don't recommend them is you go to any of the uh, embassy advisories of the Australian Canadian English and US embassies and you'll find that uh, they're well aware of all the accidents they've had and how many <laughs> people are injured in them so not very stable I just went on a little binge one afternoon and we took the uh, coconut taxi we took the bicycle taxi we hopped in one of the old Russian Ladas, which was really, mm-hmm. I think that's a fun thing to do. It's just a little tin can that came from the, back in the 80s when the Soviet Union was the only source of anything for the Cubans. And, of course, you've got the classic cars. And it seemed to me oh, every time yeah. I jumped into one of those cars, very friendly but good businessman, kind of aggressive, every time I'd sit in the car in the back seat, he'd turn around <laughs> and he'd go, this car is 1955. And and I would think, so am I. I mean, this was the same. This car was as old as me. And, uh, of course, it's been d- fixed up. Most of them don't even have their original engines anymore, do they? About 50% do and 50% don't. You know, I'm not that into old cars, but, I mean, almost anybody's going to get excited about these classic old cars. Mm-hmm. And it's it doesn't disappoint you. You get into Havana, and you're going to have these cars sure. everywhere. And the the great thing is, they know the tourists are enamored with these things. They know the tourist <laughs> needs to go out to the beach or over to the fortress or over to the museum, and they know how to get you there. I did find that the cabbies were more aggressive and quite a bit more expensive in these touristy classic American cars, whereas if you did hop into a, a public cab or one of the old Ladas or the Tin Kents that are with the romantic old American Chevys, you'd get a far cheaper ride out of it. But anyway, you cut it. Getting around in Havana <laughs> is a lot of fun. Let's go in the Coco Taxi. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher P. Baker. Christopher is the author of The Moon Handbook to Havana. It's out in a new edition. And Christopher's website is ChristopherPBaker.com. Christopher, you mentioned that we have different sort of dimensions of Havana. you got the colonial old town, which has really been spiffed up for the tourists now. you got five different colonial squares. Each of them are vibrant with cafes that are tourist-friendly and lots of uh, people posing for pictures and modern art in the squares and delightful galleries and museums. And then you get a little farther from that and you get the real world. And one of the highlights for me was just walking through the barrios that sprawl just two or three blocks away from the capital of the whole country, the Capitol building, which is modeled after our capital mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. I was struck by the contrast. You've got the Capitol building, you got the very classy, touristy, old Havana Center, and then you got the just brutal reality of life in these melting sugar cube Art Deco buildings that every once in a while they just literally collapse, but people are still living in there, hanging out their laundry, and uh, eking out an existence in this amazing urban environment. A great portrait there, Rick. And there are two reasons for that reality. And the first is that Havana developed literally westward from the harbor for about 10 miles during chronological time. And so there was no replacement of prior buildings. There was addition. So when the Capitolio building, looking like the Capitol in Washington, went up in the 20s, it was the period when Old Havana had expanded beyond its bounds, and the city was moving westward, literally 
late 19th century, early 20th century, 1950s, you can track it by going west through the city. But when the revolution happened, whereas in other countries there would have been replacement of buildings that were falling down, there's not been any replacement. Mm. So in a sense, the city was trapped in time. Mm. One charming thing about Havana for me, Christopher, is just how accessible it is. I was just leaving the Inglaterra Hotel, where everybody goes for their internet connectivity and so on, and what is the big street there called the Paseo uh, de Prado? Neptuno. Neptuno. And mm-hmm. I could just walk down that street, and if a door is open, I think as you encouraged us in our book, we can just say hi and kind of pop in. And, you know, you'd pop into elementary schools, and you'd pop into people's uh, courtyards, and you just meet people everywhere. But you got to have that spirit of adventure and, and go through a few doors that don't have a big electronic welcome sign. Well, you know, I don't know whether, whether you need that spirit of adventure because the Cubans are so open literally live with their doors and windows open and they're so open in their hearts they'll see you coming by they'll talk to you and they'll they'll literally invite you into their homes and in fact the average home in cuba rick has 10 to 15 people who are non-family members pass through that house on a daily basis Hmm. (laughs) it's almost surreal it doesn't one of the wonderful qualities i was out on new year's eve with my family and i didn't want to go to a fancy hotel and pay 80 dollars for party favors and have a at the poolside. I wanted to just go into the barrio and, and meet mm-hmm. some people and be invited into a house. I had a hunch that would happen, and it did. And it was like sure, yeah. three generations there. It was uh, the only thing they were serving was straight rum. Uh, they were playing some great music, and, and we were so welcome. We learned how to dance, and we had uh, just a beautiful, magical moment. But if we had not been out wandering the streets and uh, taking advantage of that exuberant, warm Cuban hospitality, We'd be sitting on a rooftop of a hotel with other Americans uh, wondering where's the fun. Yeah, and that's a typical experience that most people who are willing to walk the streets have because uh, there's nowhere that I know in this world that has a people who are so vivacious, that live so publicly and welcome everybody, in a sense adopt people. Um, I have family, as it were, in inverted commas, throughout the Mm -hmm. island just by virtue of um, being welcomed often as I was passing at home. Well, I'm sure you have to be careful. I was struck with how comfortable and how safe I felt, even after dark, even in very poor neighborhoods. There's something about Cuba where you you feel safe, even though you're surrounded by what feels like desperate poverty. Yeah, you can let your guard down uh, to a greater degree than almost any other place I've ever been. Christopher P. Baker has long been one of the foremost authorities on travel to Cuba. He authors the Moon Cuba and Moon Havana guidebooks. His website is ChristopherPBaker.com. Christopher, in Havana, there are a couple of museums I thought were exceptional. One was a history of the country, and the other was the Revolutionary Museum. Could you talk about those two museums? The Museum of the Revolution now occupies Fulgencio Batista's former palace. He was, of course, the brutal dictator who was overthrown by the revolution itself. But right next to it is my favorite museum, and that is the Museum of Fine Arts, the Cuban section. That is a world-class museum by any standard. Hmm. And then you have uh, Museo Ernest Hemingway in Hemingway's former home, the most visited museum in Cuba, and it is kept exactly as it was when he left in 1960. And all his possessions are still there because his widow was only allowed to take 200 pounds by weight of goods out from Cuba after everything. There's so many dimensions to the story of Cuba, and i got to pinch myself. Havana, I think, is 500 years old. I mean, this is amazing that it was arguably the most strategic fortress and harbor for trade in the early, early days of the conquistadors. 
Do I understand that a couple times a year, a convoy of ships would leave Havana's harbor to go to Europe to be protected against the pirates? They would go out together? Twice a year. It's called La Flota, the uh, treasure fleets. Of course, you can imagine back there, there were literally hundreds of ships that gathered twice a year with all the treasures, and then they would sail with all the armed galleons to protect them back to Spain. Hmm. And that speaks also something we haven't mentioned, the number of fortresses. Right there in Old Havana, you have the oldest fort in the Americas and then the largest fort across the harbor in the Americas. Yeah, and crossing the harbor, you've got the cannon overlooking this tiny strip of water that leads to the big harbor. And you could imagine why that was such a safe haven and just a a handful of cannon would protect that harbor perfectly. And from that fortress, you look out over Havana, you see the Malacan stretching out toward the nicer neighborhoods. It's just an amazing place to feel comfortable with. Christopher, thanks so much, and and we'll be in touch again to learn more about traveling to Cuba as this exciting opportunity for American travelers continues to unfold. Thank you, Rick, and we have still to have that mojito in Havana together. You can listen to earlier conversations with Chris Baker about Cuba in the Travel with Rick Steves archives. Search in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Next, let's look at important places you can visit to better understand the United States. As the National Park Service celebrates its centennial, it's worth taking a look at their mission statement, which says that they care for hundreds of parks and natural and historic sites so that everyone can experience our national heritage. Filmmaker Ken Burns helps us appreciate the grandeur of America's national parks. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. In 1990, Ken Burns' groundbreaking documentary series about the Civil War gave Americans a new way to understand who we are as a people through the stories of those who came before us. Ken's been making compelling historical documentaries for more than 30 years. His subjects include the Brooklyn Bridge and the Statue of Liberty, jazz, baseball, prohibition, and the Roosevelts. And just in time to commemorate the centennial of the National Park Service, PBS stations have been re-airing his 2009 series called The National Parks, America's Best Idea. A while back on Travel with Rick Steves, we talked about it with Ken, and we thought you'd appreciate hearing our conversation once again. Ken Burns joins us now by phone from his home in New Hampshire. Ken, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. National Parks, America's Best Idea. This is just one in a 30-year series of chances for you to help us all define who we are as Americans. How did National Parks help answer that question? That's exactly right. Each one of the films, though they're on you know broadly diverse subjects, do pursue this question, who are we? Who are those strange and complicated people who like to call themselves Americans? And we've always been drawn to the central themes of America, and one is, of course, place. And for the first time in human history, land was set aside, not for noblemen or kings or the very rich, as all land had been set aside, disposed up to that point but for everybody and for all time. It's an utterly democratic impulse and could only have come from us, a people who were struggling with what it meant to live in a democracy. We think, in fact, and when I say we, I mean Dayton Duncan, who is the writer and co-producer and my dear, dear friend who suggested the idea of doing a film on the national parks to me, and it took me four seconds to say yes. (laughs) We think that it is nothing less than the Declaration of Independence applied to the landscape. And we call it, using Wallace Stegner's, the great Western writer's provocative thing, that this is America's best idea. We know that the best ideas are articulated in the Declaration of Independence, but once you'd established a country under those principles or trying to live up to those principles, you'd be hard-pressed to find something that was a better idea than the national parks. 
I stumbled onto it one night, and it was mesmerizing. And what struck me, Ken, that, of course, you see Yosemite. Visually, it's just like you, you got to watch it. But it was the personal stories interwoven into that. It's so much more than, you know, waterfalls and big trees. Well, that was what we were afraid of. We didn't want to do a nature film. But we felt that, in fact, this was had a very human story behind it. And there were several dozen people that we thought we could introduce you to, most of whom you may not have heard of, a few of them like Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir you may know a little bit about, but to interweave their complicated story, almost like a Russian novel, but set against the backdrop of some of the most beautiful places on Earth. So in fact, we do end up showing pretty pictures of nature and of wildlife, but they're in the service, I think, of something more than just ooh and ah but really complex and utterly American ideas and, and I think, really fascinating stories. Now, John Muir dealt with that issue a little bit, talking about how people come and go, but these natural wonders are imperishable, and together it kind of ties us through the ages. What was he getting at there? Well, you know, it's a wonderful thing. He talked about a special kinship among the lovers of nature, and he meant that at the highest level. You know, you stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon, and you look down and see the patient erosion of the Colorado River uh, that exposes Precambrian Vishnu Schist, rock that's been there for 1.7 billion years old. And, and that, that sort of reminds you of your insignificance. And at the same time, uh, just as we know that the egotist is diminished by his or her self-regard, we know that that feeling of humility actually makes us bigger. And so there's something that connects us, not just to this magnificent scene as we stand there on the South Rim, but to everything else in the universe, John Muir would say. And for me, it also, we were surprised by how personal these places were for everyone that we talked to, not just the historical figures we were excavating, but from the historians that we interviewed to help us tell those stories. They also insisted on telling us about these transformative moments they had when their parents took them. And then suddenly we realized that we had also been bound to our own sense of personal identity by remembering trips we had with our loved ones. So as you stand on the Grand Canyon, it matters the great layers, the grand geological library, Muir called it, that's before you. But it also really matters whose hand you're holding. And one thing that surprised me when I was absorbed in this, it made me more patriotic. You know, the first director of the National Park Service, a very complicated man named Stephen Mather, called the parks vast schoolrooms of Americanism. And he had a PR guy, a writer from New York, who went and had this revelation where he looked around a campfire and he realized there was a banker from Michigan and there was a farmer from Vermont and there was a somebody from this state and that state. And they were all, in that instance, just Americans. The trappings of, of class, of region, had, had fallen away. And that what was so great about a national park, I mean, my goodness, the Grand Canyon would still be there if all the land was owned by rich people and there were mansions and you and I couldn't see it except for pictures in history books or if Yosemite was a gated community. But the sense of co-ownership of common wealth that is so much an essential part of our identity of people, which in recent years we've tended to abandon uh, in favor of the independent free agents we all think we can be. But in fact, things like World War II and the national parks remind us poignantly in two different ways 
how bound up we are with each other, how much commonwealth matters, shared sacrifice. And to me, the fact that we shared the sacrifice of setting aside Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon or Yosemite or all the other places adds to the riches that we all have in common. I mean, this is, if you think about it, we're all co-owners. And what is expected of ownership? Well, every once in a while you might go to these places, you know, kick the tires, make sure someone was taking care of it, and then put it in your will for your posterity. And that's a pretty good bargain to be able to visit, as I said, you know, some of the most spectacular places on this planet. Okay, well, and then that just leads me to what is to me the logical next question. How does that apply to the politics of today as we are facing all of these austerity programs and the parks might be threatened? They are threatened, and in many cases at municipal and state levels, they've been closed down. They've just shut them down as if we didn't need them. It was so interesting that Franklin Roosevelt, in the middle of the Great Depression, and this was a devastating uh, period, and Franklin Roosevelt knew that these parks were the lifeline. People flooded to the parks. Their budgets went up. They, the attendance went up during the Depression. And the it was the sort budget of went up for parks yes, during the Depression. Was, the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, one of the alphabet soup of programs the New Deal permitted, uh, which, of course, would be dismissed as socialism and make work, saved the lives of, literally, the lives of families around the country by allowing their young sons, their young men, to go off in a quasi-military-like setting uh, to work on bridges and roads and national park trails and lodges and campgrounds. Many of them we enjoy to this day. And so what the parks did is it offered solace, from these tough times. It offered this sense of community that, yeah, we were going through the worst we'd ever seen since the Civil War, but we could get it together because we were a country that had these magnificent jewels. And it also put to work hundreds of thousands of young men who sent their paycheck. They were paid 30 bucks a month, and 25 of it had to go back to the family. So if you had a wealthy friend, let's just say you had a wealthy friend motivated only by greed, you could make a case that parks for our society are a good pragmatic investment? Well, I think you could make an argument always for the park's pragmatic stuff, but I like to think of it, you remember the movie we all love, It's a Wonderful Life? Oh, yeah. The question to me is, where do you want to live? Do you want to live in Bedford Falls or do you want to live in Potterville? <laughs> if there were no national parks, as I said before, the, the Grand Canyon would be lined by mansions of the rich. If there were no national parks, Zion and Yosemite, two of the most beautiful places I know would be gated community. Without the national parks, Yellowstone would be called Geyser World, and <laughs> we would have already have destroyed most of those fragile geothermal features with our avarice and our greed. And so I think what's so great is that the national parks help to remind us in the way the Declaration and the Constitution does, and the buildings on the Mall in Washington, which are, by the way, part of the National <laughs> Park Service, that we've done some good things in our past. And remember, we don't just save places of spectacular natural beauty. We save relics of ancient cultures at Mesa Verde. We save uh, battlefields of our struggles from Yorktown and Valley Forge to... Um, our most recent struggles, you could say Shanksville, Pennsylvania, which is a, a site. We also are a country willing to say we have aspects of our past that aren't so uh, thrilling, but this high school, this working inner-city high school in Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas, Central High School, where the crisis of school desegregation occurred in 1957, that's also 
Hmm. Still not only a high school, but a National Park Service site, and so are places of Indian massacres, and so are slave cabins. And so a great country can acknowledge its mistakes and be still greater still in the acknowledgement of that, and I know no other country that does that. And I think it's pretty clear we can better know where we're going if we know from where we came. And you know, Harry Truman idea. said it. He said it really well. He said, the only thing that's really new is the history you don't know. And that, <laughs> you're absolutely right, Rick. If you, if you don't know where you've been, how could you possibly know where you are and where you're going? And just a working knowledge of our past, the impulse to save the handiworks of our past uh, and these great natural cathedrals, it just ensures that we have a, a future, as paradoxical as that might seem. We're listening to a conversation we first aired five years ago here on Travel with Rick Steves with Ken Burns after he won a couple of Emmy Awards for his National Parks documentary series. His crew filmed some of America's most spectacular landscapes over a six-year period in all seasons. The series is being repeated on many public television stations in time to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the founding of the National Park Service on August 25th. Let's talk practical travel tips for a minute. If somebody's inspired by your series and they want to take the family and go enjoy the parks, what are a few practical tips to make sure that we have the best experience as we appreciate our great park system? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, first of all, it depends on how much time you have. And, you know, even getting out of that train that pulls up to uh, the south rim of the Grand Canyon and walk 100 yards and peer over is worth it. But taking time to get off the beaten track, to go beyond the parking lots and the, and the sort of the loop trails and the visitor center will reward families. And I think as we interviewed people for it, we found that those folks who had gone camping together uh, had spent that iconic in the station wagon and later the minivan, iconic seven or eight week uh, summer thing or even a four week summer thing bound memories together between each other that transcended the spectacular places that you know ken it's funny you say that because i just stumbled on some old old family photos of ours when i was four or five or seven years old and it's those park magic moments where the family came together where i gained an appreciation for nature it, it planted a seed that stayed with me for the rest of, of my course. life and and it happened with me it happened with dayton duncan who is the writer and co-producer of our national parks film it seemed to happen with everybody we talked to that they had some moment where when you go camping or when you just go visit these parks and even staying in the motels uh, takes your family out of the normal quotidian <laughs> routine and those are the stuff that memory tends to forget but you remember those things oh, and, and I don't know how many times since the film has been out that someone's come up to me and said we saw the film and I realized I hadn't taken my kids yet, and somebody would start to cry. And said, we went last <laughs> summer, and we had the best time, and, you know, they pushed forward a little kid, and they're nodding in agreement. And when do you find uh, kids and parents sort of as one? And I, I think the greatest review I've ever had for a film was learning that attendance this year was up at least 10 or maybe 15 million at the national parks over last year. And we know that in some small way, our series played some part in it. Oh, I love it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ken Burns about the national parks, America's best idea. Ken, when you were filming, I mean, you mentioned don't just park the car and look out the window, get out and hike. I would imagine you had a lot of gear. What was the most exercise that you got with your crew to get the shot you needed? 
there's a really funny story where, you know, and we do carry modest amount of weight, and it's an athletic event. You get up at 3 a.m., you drive like a maniac for uh, 45 minutes to some place, you park the car, you run up, and you think, oh, maybe the sun will come up here. No, 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 maybe it'll here. And we <laughs> found ourselves rushing around trying to determine what the very best place would be. And finally, we set our tripod, and we're out of breath, and the sun comes up. We get great, great shots. And just as we leave, we look down, and there's a little sign presented there by your and my park service that said ideal photographic spot oh right <laughs> that's good and and, and yeah. all of our professionalism went out the window <laughs> that's the important point every single shot you see in our film and i think there's some really beautiful cinematography anyone they're, could get they're all accessible and, and they're all accessible they all belong to us from a tv producer and a photographer's point of view you need to get the light so that's probably why you get up earlier well or, you, we've also found you know the emily dickinson called sunrises and sunsets the far theatricals of day and i i heard that about 35 years ago and, and i always use that in answer to this why get up at that time it, it the falls are going to look the same. They are, but they're not. That angle of light at, at sunrise or sunset mm. alters the thing and gives us a heightened perception. And all of us are awakened, however minutely, by these far theatricals. And I think that it's the magic hour. It is what we call in the business the magic hour. But if we bring our families, if you get up a little bit earlier or stay a little bit later before you go to dinner, you are rewarded with not just a great photograph for the album, but also a sense of inspiriting that John Muir would say contributed to that kinship we all seek with not only the parks and nature, but each other. Very briefly, what seasonal considerations did you have? Did you want to shoot off-season, summer? Well, we went at every time of day and night and in every season, and that was important to us, too. And I'd urge people who have not experienced a Yellowstone Park in the wintertime to go do it. A good deal of the park roads are closed and inaccessible except by ski vehicles, but it is open at the top at Mammoth Hot Springs, and you can take these different vehicles down to Old Faithful, where there is a lodge that's open year-round, as well as Mammoth Hot Springs. And it is well worth seeing, uh, as John Muir said, the morning of creation, because when you get out there, and not just watch the geothermal features, but perhaps round a bend and see 500 buffalo nestling next to the Yellowstone River, and you could easily be back in the last ice age. And that kind of sense of connection to nature, the winter scenes at Yellowstone can do. Ken, in your experience producing the national parks, I would imagine you had many moments when you were just quiet and awestruck. Yeah. Let's finish off taking us to one of those places. I had a moment in Yosemite National Park where after four or five days of intense labor, I couldn't sleep. And I had told everyone that this was my first national park, and that place had rearranged my molecules in ways that are almost spiritual, opened me up. But lying awake that night, I remembered, oh my gosh, I'd forgotten a moment in 1959 when I was six years old, when my mother was dying of cancer, when my father took me on the first and only road trip we made together to Shenandoah National Park, which is a relatively small park. But suddenly this not repressed but forgotten memory came flooding back in. And there in one of the most spectacular places on earth, Yosemite, I was able to touch on something now 50 years old that bound, at least temporarily, our fragile and suffering family together as I went on this trip with my dad. And I can remember what it's like. I could suddenly re-remember, I guess is the better word, what his hand felt like.
in mind. And I'll be grateful forever to Yosemite for awakening that spirit in me and for being able to recall and now capture and share with my kids the memory of this, you know, impossibly young and terrified little boy in the midst of a developing family tragedy, uh, having just a weekend of grace with my dad. Ken Burns, producer of public television's The National Parks, America's Best Idea. Thank you so much for, in so many ways over the last 30 years, helping those Americans who want to know who we are find out exactly that. Best wishes with your work. Thank you very much. Let's explore more of the places you can visit on a family road trip that help to define us as Americans. The Director Emeritus of the Smithsonian Museum of American History recommends essential sites you can visit all across the USA. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. If you're ready for a road trip in search of America, I'd suggest taking our next guest along, or or at least his book. Brent D. Glass spotlights 50 of the most important places you can visit all across the USA, places that have shaped who we are as a people. Brent led a major expansion of the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, and he's known as a leader in preserving and presenting the stories of America. His new book, 50 Great American Places, takes us to the sites of the earliest native settlements and to places where inventors and innovators, writers and activists changed the world and changed how America defines itself. Brent, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you. It's good to be with you. What an exciting undertaking to to collect these 50 places. Now, in your introduction, you say that this book tells the story of America through the places that matter in our history. So would you say the the 50 places you selected are the, the, if you had to choose, the 50 places that were most impactful for our history? I think the 50 places reflect uh, major themes in American history that have shaped uh, who we are and have defined American history. So the themes that are important to me, and I believe uh, help us understand who we are as Americans, are freedom, uh, war, innovation, diversity, and landscape. Okay, so freedom, war, innovation, diversity, and landscape. Just very briefly, give me one site that comes to mind for each of these themes. American freedom. The Freedom Trail in Boston is a great place to start. There are actually 16 sites on the Freedom Trail, and when you take that walk around Boston, it's about a a two-and-a-half-mile walk. Uh, You can do it in an afternoon or maybe take a full day to visit some of the places that are connected to the early protests associated with the uh, American Revolution. Wow. And then how about war? Because war is a big part of our history. Yes. Well, there are several places. Gettysburg Battlefield is one of my favorites and one that I spent many, many uh, visits Mm -hmm. uh, getting to know. Pearl Harbor Mm -hmm. in uh, Honolulu, Hawaii is a nice 20th century example of how war has shaped our history. So we've had a lot of wars, but we've had, I think we excel in innovation as a nation. So that it's yes. logical that that would be one of your yes. themes. Where yeah. would we go to be inspired by America's innovative spirit? I would go to the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Museum in Baltimore, which is the repair shops of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad have been converted to a wonderful museum, which explains why railroads were the shaping technology of the 19th century. And then if you want to stay in the 19th century, Edison's Laboratory Hmm. in West Orange, New Jersey, which is a National Park Service site. When you're talking about these places for innovation, 
it sounds like what contributed to your selection of those two sites is the way they were designed and presented to the public. How much of a factor was that? Are there some places that deserve mm-hmm. to be better presented to the American traveling public that just disappointed you and therefore didn't get weighted as highly as others that, that mm-hmm. really were, were more creative and effective in the way they presented themselves? Because I know in my work in Europe, there's some places that deserve huge appreciation, but they're just gathering dust and nobody's figured out how to present it to the public. And other places are kind of like a a pleasant Mm -hmm. surprise. Oh, this is quirky, but it's so creatively explained and, you know, lovingly designed. You learn so much and you leave there inspired. Yes. I, I would think that the story of labor and organized labor in this country is not as well Remembered, or there aren't as many sites of public memory as I think there could be. Organized labor, yeah. Now, of all the places you visited, Brent, which one comes to mind as just beautifully um, curated and designed and presented? Mm. That's a real tough one, but I think I find the Presidio in San Francisco is a great place to understand not only the Spanish influence on American history but also the military history and the conversion of a military base to a national park. So you have many stories there that are Mm -hmm. being preserved and presented beautifully to the public. When I read that chapter in your book, I was impressed by the multifaceted approach to that because it's, you know, that's getting the most out of that historic site for the visitors. Yes. And it's, if you visited there, you, you see the Golden Gate Bridge, you see Alcatraz, you see uh, Fort Point, the various examples of military architecture and engineering, and it's this gorgeous landscape, the scenery. It also emphasizes the importance of preservation when you visit the Presidio, uh, how important that is. To finish your five themes of American history, as illustrated in great sites, we had freedom, war, innovation. You have diversity. Well, I have two sites from the pre-colonial period that remind us of the um, civilization that existed here for hundreds of years, and the American Indians at Mesa Verde in Colorado, and also at Cahokia Mounds in Illinois. Uh, Both these civilizations were highly sophisticated, highly developed, without any advanced technology. They were able to establish cities and towns and a, a stable and complex civilization. We always think of American Indians as nomadic, but in fact, places like Mesa Verde and Cahokia illustrate just how uh, sophisticated and highly developed these American Indian civilizations Hmm. were. I'm always struck by how Americans are so impressed by the Europeans' ability to sail across the Atlantic 500 years ago and and Mm -hmm. how we appreciate all the great cultural accomplishments of Europe through the Middle Ages, but we really don't uh, have much of a sense that a thousand years ago Kaokia mm-hmm. was quite an impressive um, social structure. Well, what I particularly enjoy about Kahokia, and that was a surprise to me, was visiting these mounds uh, that have been saved by the state of Illinois. These mounds, many of them are in the state park, although not all of the mounds were have been saved. But when you climb to the top of the tallest mound, which is called Monk's Mound, uh, you can look out across the Mississippi River and see the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. That is great. And so I paired the mound and the arch in one essay. That reminds me of what a delight it is that reading your book, it, it occurs that you're a historian first and a tour guide second, and that's kind of rare. Yes. Well, I wrote the book that I wanted to read, and I wanted to encourage historical literacy first. Mm-hmm. And by that, I, I don't mean memorization of dates. I mean uh, understanding the context of 
historic sites and why mm. historic places are resources for us. I wanted to encourage tourism and experiencing these places firsthand, and I wanted to recognize historic preservation. And the last theme on your list is landscape. Well, I include uh, Yellowstone National Park. That's the only national park that I include that's mostly a natural uh, wonder. And because Yellowstone was the first national park, it gave me an opportunity to write about the whole idea of national parks and the role that John Muir and other uh, leaders played in creating uh, one of America's most original ideas, and that is the national park system. And this is the centennial year of the national park system. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're joined by historian Brent Glass. He's taking us on a tour of American history through many of the most important sites that explain who we are as a nation. His book is 50 Great American Places, Essential Sites Across the U.S. His website is brentdglass.com. Brent, when you wrote this book, you could have gone just with all the obvious sites, the iconic sites, but you pulled out some sites that would cause people to raise their eyebrows, like what? Uh, shopping malls? Uh, what? Nuclear power plants? Can you talk a little bit about some of the less predictable places that made the top 50? Uh, the shopping mall chapter is the final chapter in the book, and I had a little fun with starting the book with the National Mall in Washington and ending it with um, uh, the Malls of America. As it turns out, the first enclosed shopping mall opened in 1956, just south of Minneapolis in the town of Edina, Minnesota. Hmm. And it happens to be only a few miles from the Mall of America. Hmm. So that was a nice uh, coincidence. Mm -hmm. But it also allowed me to talk about uh, Victor Grun, an architect who was an immigrant from Austria and came to this country with very little means. And he created an architectural practice that specialized in commercial design first with uh, retail stores along Fifth Avenue, but then later he expanded his practice to shopping malls and then was commissioned by the Dayton family, the Dayton family in, in Minneapolis, to uh, create the first enclosed shopping mall. And the Southdale Center is still there. And uh, shopping malls are more and more an endangered hmm. species yeah. because many are closing. So I thought it was important to write about shopping malls as a symbol of suburbanization, which was a major movement of people following World War II. You also talked about the Hanford B. Reactor in, in my state, yes. Washington. Yes. Well, the Manhattan Project is um, a turning point in world history, and many people know about Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and Los Alamos, uh, New Mexico, but not as much about Hanford and the story of creating the um, atomic bomb and the plutonium a bomb, which was the second bomb dropped over Nagasaki. Are tourists welcome to go there? It has now opened to the public, and the three sites are now part of a national park. The Manhattan Project National Park actually is located in three locations. So you just pull on your uh, radioactive protection suit and, and follow the guide? Uh, actually, the, the sites have been cleaned up, and Hanford has been the subject of one of the biggest environmental cleanups in, in world history, if not the biggest. There are now tours offered of the B reactor, and there's a, a very nice museum in Richland, Washington, not far from Hanford, that you can visit and learn more about the Manhattan Project. Brent D. Glass has just released a book recommending 50 places you should visit to better understand the variety of people and their stories that help define America's national identity. Brent is the Director Emeritus of the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History on the Mall in Washington, D.C., 
He spearheaded a major renovation so that the museum could showcase dozens of new exhibits and enhance its online presence. The informative essays in his book, 50 Great American Places, include web links and additional nearby places that are worth checking out on your visit. His website is brentdglass.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Olga's calling in from Vancouver in Washington. Olga, thanks for your call. Oh, hi, Rick. Nice to be on your program. Uh, Two of the places that our family has found to be exceptional have been Colonial Williamsburg and Monticello. And why so? We really loved going and taking our kids to Colonial Williamsburg because the kids learn about colonial times, and it was nice to go there and actually, like, step back into history. For example, my daughter got to have a a fun afternoon gardening with Thomas Jefferson, and so she could ask him questions and everything, and just a lot of fun, I feel, the whole experience of going there. So Thomas Jefferson was out gardening that day. That's pretty cool. He was out gardening, and I remember we were on another tour, and our son... He was uh, accused of being a chicken thief, and he had to go and (laughs) stay in the stocks for a little bit. So it shows the kids what was back then. And what's really interesting is that each time you go back, it's usually a different year in the, like, 1770s, 1780s. So you never know which year you're going to be visiting. I think those uh, sites that offer an immersive experience, like Colonial Williamsburg or Monticello, are, are very effective ways of engaging young people and getting them to love history. So I think that's wonderful. Is that unusual, Brent, to have the um, people role-playing where you might meet somebody famous in the garden? It's becoming more common. Those of us in the field of museums and historic sites realize that we need to involve the visitor Mm -hmm. in an active way, that that active learning is much preferable than to sit and listen to a tour and have a guy drone on about the place or the people that occupied the place. So um, any way we can involve people in learning is to be encouraged. And that sure uh, worked from Olga's point of view as a parent. Olga, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Brent Glass. His book is 50 Great American Places. You know, Brent, I just feel throughout this book a real commitment to history. And uh, it seems you've devoted your career to the cause of what you call historical literacy. Can you explain a little bit what is historical literacy and, and why is it important to you? Historical literacy is a way of describing the role that history plays as a resource to understand our times and our own lives. And it's hard to imagine being a citizen in a democracy without having some knowledge of history. And it's hard to preserve a democracy unless we have people who have an understanding of history. So historical literacy, to me, is a critical skill to participating in in American life and American democracy, and especially in a time when we have uh, presidential elections or we have other events coming up. You can't pick up a newspaper without reading Mm. uh, and read a newspaper without having some understanding of history. Isn't there sort of a spirit in our country right now of almost being ashamed of history and dumbing it down? And in schools, uh, vocational studies are, are prioritized over history, which how can you get a job with a history degree and so on? As a historian... How do you react to that? I think a study of history, whether you major in history or whether you take a few courses in history, gives you a a perspective that allows you to function in life no matter what you're doing. And and very few people will stay in one job 
uh, throughout their lives any, any longer. That's more and more rare. Mm -hmm. But I think to be able to have the skills of critical thinking, of being able to compare one issue with another, uh, with understanding leadership, uh, which uh, a study of history gives you, I think there's a, a number of life skills, skills of of leading your life that uh, come from uh, reading about history and visiting historic mm -hmm. places. I remember when I was a kid, I got I got a history degree because I enjoyed it. And then just common sense, you got to go back and get a business degree so you can actually put food on the table. And so I got a history degree and a business degree. And a generation later, I look back, and honestly, I think my history degree has been every bit as practical, just flat-out practical, in my life as my business degree. And I, uh, it, it breaks my heart that, that we're losing track of that because we, we think times are tough and we can't afford both. Well, I agree with you. And I think um, in my own career, I find that having that knowledge of history wasn't just a preparation for a vocation, but was a way of just approaching uh, life and uh, friendships mm -hmm. and different uh, situations that you find yourself in. So um, I think uh, history is an incredibly valuable discipline. And finally, it's fun. It you is know, fun. Reading about history, going to these historic places is uh, enormously enjoyable. You know, Brent, mm -hmm. we're, we're blessed with such a, a rich and stable democracy, but it really is fragile, isn't it? It is, and, and I chose several of the sites in 50 Great American Places to illustrate that American history also involves overcoming barriers. You mentioned the Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, where the nine African-American students integrated that high school in 1957. And that was a an amazing story. And the National Park Service now um, manages a visitor center across from the high school. The high school is still open. And what's great about that school is that the principal has made that story of the Little Rock Nine and the desegregation of public schools in Little Rock part of the curriculum in that high school. And the students, mm. black and white students, are curators of that story. And it's a, a living mm part of the public memory of that school and of the city. Wow, that is so important. It's fascinating to me. If you took 100 Americans of all stripes, if you took each of them and helped them thoughtfully visit all 50 sites in your book, how would that impact that person's personal politics? I think it would reveal to people just how, even though we're a young country, just how complex and rich American history has been. I know we think of the great civilizations of Asia and Europe, and, and we visit those places, and we should. But America, because its uh, history is so compact, and because we are the oldest surviving democracy, the world's largest economy, the world's largest uh, military power, how did we get to this point? And I think you can't understand that without visiting some of these places. You can read about them, and mm. I hope you read the book. Mm -hmm. But that's just the starting point. I'm glad you made that point because the, the book's a great read, but what, what really makes it, what really gets it over the goal line is actually being inspired to go to these places and stand there and, and think and appreciate what happened right there and how it impacted our nation you know, over the generations. Uh, we've been talking with Brent Glass, his book, 50 Great American Places, Essential Historic Sites Across the U.S. Thanks, Brent. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to our colleagues at KUCR Riverside and NPR in Washington for their help this week. 
You too can be a caller on the show. There's a link in the radio page at ricksteves.com to send us your email address. That's how we can notify you of our next recording sessions and topics. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.